0: I suppose one of the best tests for a theology on prayer is to sit in a hospital waiting room. Uh, Sometimes the news is good, and sometimes the doctor comes out and delivers something to a family, things that they don't want to hear. Sometimes you don't get extra time with a loved one like you had hoped. And sometimes God does not answer that prayer that you prayed so passionately for God to intervene and to heal. And God has denied your request. I mean, we can empathize with people, can we not? Not just in a hospital room, some other need that you may have, and God has not answered. And so we think that God has been deaf. Remembering hospital waiting rooms uh, where families have heard difficult news. That kind of brings a, a hard reality to a theology on prayer. And so I have to turn to those great theologians, the Rolling Stones, and remember their words, you can't always get what you want. I've always eschewed me trying to be some kind of carnival barker, trying to drum up some image of God or, you know, rah rah like I'm some cheerleader for God when it just doesn't ring quite true, it doesn't square with reality. I acknowledge that others have prayed for years for specific intervention and it just seems like God. Has not heard them. It's in those moments when your faith either breaks or it's strengthened. It's not because I'm going through anything, it's just because I know the hurt that's out here. I know what some are going through. And I know it's painful. I know it's hard. I know you've prayed. And it seems like all we're left with in those times are doubts about God's character. Seems all you're left with is, is anger with the silence, or maybe even guilt because you felt like you weren't doing it right. There's some misstep. I didn't have enough faith, or I, I didn't say the right words. But what do you do when God does something completely unexpected? How do you respond then? I mean, Acts 12 is a story of a miraculous answer to prayer. The whole book of acts is also a history book. It's a history book of some not so pretty things within the church in this first century. I mean, I don't want to give a false picture, a picture that's all good stuff, you know, live our best life now, like some book title is. It's like, really? That's what you're going to say? to somebody who's grieving. This is a narrative of real life in the church, just like our own, just like what all of us have experienced. The church is not always, you know, good and happy and cheerful. And when Sunday morning tries to push that, no thanks. I don't need that. Because some of it just isn't pretty. Some prayers just go unanswered, at least in the affirmative. Uh, look through the book of Acts. I mean, these are things that happened within the church. He had one leader that had to be replaced because he betrayed Jesus. Starts off that way. What a way to start? We read of a couple who experienced a premature death because they lied to an apostle. We read of how other people got really angry because the apostles preached the gospel. They were thrown in jail. We read about how Stephen was stoned to death and about how Saul would would go about jailing other Christians or killing them. We read of one who was beheaded, killed by the sword, a church leader. Others were jailed and killed. We read of problems within races of racism within the church. We read of problems with legalism in the church. Listen, if God is obligated to answer every prayer the way we want in the timing we want, somebody better tell the author of Acts. Because that's not the way it happened. And that's not the way it happens in our life either. Because our lives experience hardship and pain. That's a part of it too. Well, let me be clear. God is pleased when we pray for the impossible. You continue to pray. I'm glad that this is a group of people that were praying for, for Peter. And God is pleased when we pray, uh, pray often, right? But God is also pleased when we trust him to execute his game plan. And sometimes that means rescue. You know, we might get what we want. It might, that prayer might be in the affirmative. And sometimes it means endurance through the midst of the trial, we don't like it, maybe, but that's what it is. And so I just want us to keep that reality in mind as we read this story. I would not want to take away one iota of the, of the wonder and the miraculous power of God in what he did in freeing Peter. But I also don't want us to twist this passage to make it mean Something it doesn't. Verse 12 says this, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So as soon as Peter was fully awake, he realizes that God has indeed delivered him. And he doesn't want to stay out in the open because he's well aware that he's going to be hunted down. So he tries to find a hideout. It says, many uh, disciples were gathered together in Mary's house, and they were praying. And we know from early in the chapter, they were praying for Peter. So Peter knows where to go for, for safety, for support, for prayer. I love that. Do you know where to go for safety, for support, for prayer? I hope your life group is a place of safety, support, and prayer I hope our homes are places where people can go to and know that it's safe and know that there's grace there and that they're open. The home is that of Mary. When a woman is designated as an owner in the first century, that usually means that she's a widow. We also assume that she's a person of means because she had a gate and an entryway in her home and it was large enough for many disciples to come and gather and pray. One of her sons is John Mark, who would be a person who figures prominently in Paul's first missionary journey. Verse 13, And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, being Peter, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. God could get Peter out of prison but Peter could not get himself into a prayer meeting. (laughs) Rhoda means rose. She's the one who answers the door. Now just think of this. She answers the door in the middle of the night. They know the political temperature that Christians are being persecuted. That took some courage. And let us notice that Rhoda recognized Peter's voice, so she was obviously familiar with him, and I think to others there. In fact, Peter was close to some of the inhabitants of this house, as he wrote in 1 Peter 5.13 to talks about John Mark being his son, his spiritual son. Her heart is, is so flooded with joy at hearing his voice, she forgets to open the door and goes back to give that news to that party of prayer. And they said to her, you are out of your mind, girl. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. Those who were praying could not believe that God would answer this prayer so dramatically. I suppose it's easy to fault the people that were praying to think that they you know, had a lack of faith, but... Let's give them credit. They were praying. Now, we don't know what they were praying for. I assume it was for their release, or maybe they were praying for endurance, but either way, they were not expecting Peter to be at the door. I'm going to ask a question that probably shouldn't be asked in a sermon by a pastor, but here it goes. You know, I usually don't let those kinds of things stop me, so. What good does it do to pray? What benefit does prayer have? Here's another one. Would God have delivered Peter anyway if this group of people weren't praying? You know, James 4.2 says this, that there are times that you do not have, because why? Because you did not ask. But asking does not guarantee that you will get everything that you ask for because it may not fit God's will. So why bother praying? When we don't pray, we miss the joy that comes from answered prayer. When we don't pray, we miss the intimacy that comes from asking. And when we do pray we miss the independence and the pride and the arrogance that come from not asking because there's not a more humble position to be in than prayer. Prayer is not so much to get that thing we want as it is a response of recognizing our position before a holy God. When is it ever right not to pray? When are we ever right to just be, you know, I'm not going to tell God anything. He's a holy God. He knows a lot more than we do. Isn't it interesting that those who are praying should regard as insane the person who informed them that their prayers were answered? (laughs) Do you not find that ironic? Again, I don't want to be too harsh on these people. They are praying. They deserve credit for that. But it should be noted also that there are times when our lack of faith keeps us from seeing what is in front of us. God, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. And may God give us more rodas, right? People who have the courage to answer the door to see the miracles. And our text says, she kept insisting That means they kept denying. And she became even more emphatic. And they reasoned not that it is an angel. Notice what the text says. It is his angel. Now, there are two schools of thought here, both kind of closely aligned. There is a scriptural precedent for what we might call a guardian angel. For instance, uh, Daniel 3.28, the the story of the three Hebrews that were thrown in the the fiery furnace by Nebuchadnezzar. It says, that Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants. Or in Daniel 6.22, when Daniel was in the lion's den, My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they did not harm me or the very words of Jesus in Matthew 18.10, when he said, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, as you know, the rabbis would have different interpretations that they would write down. It wasn't a part of Scripture. It was kind of an interpretation of those Scriptures that they put together of of what was going on in the, the Old Testament and there are variations of how they interpreted this. Some believed, kind of a variation of the guardian angels, that the the guardian angel actually took on the visage of the person that they were protecting. While others thought that that angels were like the the disembodied spirit of the person that they were representing. In other words, like their ghost. I mean, the idea is that a person dies, and then their their angel dies. Double shows up. I'm not saying that's an accurate interpretation of spiritual realities, but I 'm saying that's an accurate representation of what people believed in that time. The disciples are saying, say that this is Peter's angel. What are they saying? They're, they're assuming that Peter is dead. And another factor that leads me to this conclusion is they're, they're insisting that it's an angel. I mean, if this was just your run-of-the-mill angel, wouldn't you get up and go see who was at the door? Wouldn't you want to see an angel? I don't know about you, but if somebody says, that there's an angel at the door, that would get me out of my seat. I would want to see the angel, wouldn't you? They don't do that. Why? Because they thought Peter was dead. This was his ghost who was speaking to them. They found it easier to believe that actually Peter had died. They didn't want to see that angel, so they believed he was dead and gone to heaven. They found it easier to believe that than that that their prayers were answered and that it was delivered. See, when when spiritual assumptions don't meet reality, our faith can either jettison forward or we hold on to these kind of wrong-headed ideas, right? And this is never more true than when we pray for something and God doesn't give us what we want. Just consider this for a second. And listen, This is by experience, right? Anybody who's walked with God a period of time has gone through tremendous times of of frustration. And so, you you know, you're just trying to figure out, okay, God is sovereign, but I'm supposed to ask, how, how does all this work? And I'm not saying I have perfect understanding. I believe that there's something here for us. There's no trial that we go through that's in a vacuum. In other words, it just sits by itself but I believe it's related to many other things that go on in our life. I mean, God knows all the contingencies, right? While can we not admit that we are, we are severely limited in our knowledge and perspective? I mean, listen, when a player is called in by the coach to go in and run a play, whatever sport, does he say to the coach, hey, I am not running this play. That is too hard. I don't feel like it. What player does that? Nobody does that. Why? Because he trusts the coach. He trusts that the coach has more wisdom. the, the, The coach takes into account more information. The coach has the team's best interest in mind, right? I mean, God prepared Peter for this moment to be locked in that jail and eventually be set free. Peter learned where doubt gets him because he remembered sinking in an ocean after he was walking on top of it. He remembered how impetuousness does not help one mature when he took a sword to a guard's ear. Peter remembers how denial and rebellion can set one back when he lied about knowing Jesus. Peter was humbled by recalling false promises he made to Jesus that he would never deny him. And Peter remembers how Jesus knew him better than he knew himself when he was asked three times by Jesus, do you love me? Are you going to feed my sheep? We might think that this present trial is done in a vacuum because we can't see the results immediately that we want and what we desire. But God sees eternity past, present, future, He sees it in light of his sovereign will. And this coach, this plan is perfect. He makes no mistakes. And though it is painful, God is molding and chiseling his divine purpose in our lives. It's hard to accept. And I can remember in college, something being taken away from me, pounding the walls I was so frustrated with God not giving me what I wanted. Perhaps Peter could sleep because he remembered God being there in every failure, every tough spot. And he trusts God that this current play accomplishes purposes beyond his scope. Now listen, you know, I I would hate to say, well, you know, God knows, and He has some purpose. I'm not saying that. Some, this is not some blind faith, okay? That God has a plan, even though that that may have a grain of truth. Even I would say it better like this: that we trust in a God who is there. We trust in a God who we know His character is one of love. Who we know has a plan. Who we know is sovereign. That's not blind. That's an an informed faith that believes in that kind of God. He is powerful. And whether I get what I want or not, my confidence remains in this God who has never lost a game, who has never called a wrong play, and who guarantees how this is all going to end. That's the kind of God we serve. You have cancer. You lost your job. That relationship not work out. That's the play. May not be the one you want, but that's the play you've been called to. That's the reality. Yes, it is hard. But listen, that is not the end. That trial that thing you're going through, that does not define you. You are not a failure because this happened. Your coach has prepared you for this very moment, for this play. And you have the choice right now of whether you are going to tell the sovereign creator of the universe that he doesn't know what he's doing or whether you are ready To lay your life down. To humble yourself. And as straight as I can shoot it, you don't need more information. You need more humility. Because ultimately, we have to recognize I'm in no position to dictate to God. And I trust him. I trust that he has prepared me for this Moment, but Peter continued knocking. <laughs> if there ever was an understatement, I mean, Peter knows he's being hunted down. Can you imagine looking over your shoulder, like, dude, answer the door? Okay, all right, he continues knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he distra- described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. There's a mood of celebration here. And Peter, they're so excited, he, you know, he basically has to tell them that, Shh, keep it down. Right? there could be guards passing by, I don't want them to hear the commotion. And he proceeds to give them the details of what God had done in releasing him from prison. Well, that may have been a revelation itself, because apparently he was half groggy through the whole thing anyway, so I guess God gave him the detail. <laughs> you know, what... When we hear the testimonies of what God has done, what does that do? That encourages us, does it not? Or the the details of how God helped me endure through a trial. Maybe God didn't let me escape. Again, that encourages. Don't ever think that your story is unimportant. Then Peter tells them to let James and others know what happened. This James that's spoken about, it's the brother of Jesus. This is the same brother who at one time thought Jesus had lost his mind. Uh, this is the brother who did not show up at the cross to support his brother or his mother. This is the brother who Jesus did not mention to care for his mother when dying on the cross. So what changed him? Well, we read in 1 Corinthians fifteen seven that James was one of the ones who witnessed the resurrected Christ. That will change your worldview. So much so that we then find James in an upper room, praying with 120 others on the day of Pentecost. So much so, James is now one of the recognized leaders of the early early church. And he was changed to such a degree. Did you know James wrote the first chronological book in the New Testament, the book of James? It's the earliest book in the New Testament. That was him. God changed him. I remember that. Whenever I'm praying for something, I never doubt whether God can. There's no question he can. God can raise people from the dead. I know God can do whatever it is I'm asking him to do. Sometimes I don't know whether he will or whether he wants to, but I'm going to keep praying because I know God wants that because he wants me to stay in that position, humbly asking. But here we see James you know, sometimes family members are the hardest to reach, aren't they, with the gospel? But the resurrection can take a doubter, one who's rejected Christ, turn them into a follower. And then our text says, Peter left after this. And we're not told where he went, but we know he didn't want to hang around and just be rearrested. And except for a brief appearance in Acts 15, it's as if Peter just walks off the pages of the book of Acts. In verse 18 and 19, and when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down to Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. A disturbance that's used here in verse 18. It means great distress, extreme anxiety. Listen, these soldiers knew what was up. And it was Roman law that if a soldier was derelict in his duty and a prisoner escaped, you would receive the same sentence that was due that prisoner. So we assume here, we connect the dots, that Peter was going to be executed, and therefore these guys got executed. Now, I don't know if it was just the four that were on duty during that hour or if it was the whole 16, the the four units of four. But we know that some people met their death Because Herod was ticked that Peter got away. And Herod apparently didn't want to hang around to face some of the Jews. Because remember, he had jailed Peter, killed some Christians to gain favor with the Jews. And now that Peter got away, it was like he had mud on his face, so he heads to Caesarea. That's where his grandfather had built a palace. And he stays there for a little R&R. In the book, Mayflower, historian Nathaniel Philbrick recounts the struggle of the early pilgrims and the shaping of early America. And although the first pilgrims managed to establish a, a peaceful relationship with the Native Americans, the following generation devolved into bloody warfare. The war known as King Philip's War began in 1675 and lasted 14 months One conflict between the two groups is notable because of the minimal amount of casualties. In March of 1676, a group of Indians, numbering as many as 1,500, had attacked the village of Rehoboth. And Philbrook writes this, I quote, As the inhabitants watched from their garrisons, 40 houses, 30 barns, and two mills went up in flames. Only one person was killed. A man who believed that as long as he continued reading the Bible, no harm would come to him. Refusing to abandon his home, he was found shot to death in his chair, the Bible still in his hands. Unquote. My friends, the Bible and prayer are not like lucky charms that we hold on to and then hope that good things will come. They are means by which we communicate with a sovereign God who uses hardships to either free us so that we can escape or give us what we need in that moment to endure, to honor him. Either way, he gets great glory. And in both, he is at work. And I would suggest to you, my dear friend, that your endurance through the trial is no less miraculous than God delivering you. If God would have chosen to have Peter killed in that jail cell, we would read of Peter singing like he did before. Would that be any less miraculous? Not to me. Because it's in the midst of those situations that we see God working. Escape, get what we want. Endure, kind of go through the hardship. Either way, God is still working. When we get that it's about him at work and not about us, then we can kind of get a little wider perspective and say, oh, all right, I can accept that because I'm for God's will to be done. I'm for his kingdom to go forth. There's a great reminder of this for us. You know what it is? It's communion. I'm going to ask the ushers to come.